Well, good afternoon. Um, <clears throat> before my 30-minute clock starts here for this message, there's one thing I need to mention, and that is our Race and Grace conversation. A week from this evening, 6 o'clock, uh, we are going to be holding it at Beulah Tabernacle, uh, where we met previous, previously, so we encourage you all to attend. This is, this is an opportunity for us to sit, listen, talk, and listen some more. You say, what's, what's the point? What's the value? Uh, I'm going to share next Sunday night how my life has been changed, how my perspectives, my attitude has been changed just by sitting and talking, just by listening. Uh, this will change you. It will change you for the better. And that is good. God has pulled us together as a congregation, multicultured, beautiful. Uh, but if this is to hold together, if it is to stay together, then we must learn from each other. We must listen to each other. We must respect each other. We must understand each other. And these conversations are intended to accomplish that. Please, please make it a priority. This coming Sunday night at six o'clock. A reminder, uh, we will have, God willing, a Q&A time at the end. Uh, this morning, there will be a number on the wall that you can send your questions to. Uh, just so you're aware, there are, it looks like there's going to be more questions than we can answer every week. So starting this week, you're going to start seeing a series of posts on our church Facebook page uh, in which I'll be answering different questions that are coming in. So just keep your eye open there and we'll uh, try to serve in that way. So our main text this morning is Ecclesiastes 2 verses 1 through 11. Our, our series is entitled Wind Chasers and Worshippers, A Quest for Significance. I know that there may be some here who look at Solomon's life and his example, he who was the subject of this book, Ecclesiastes, and you may say, "What? Well, how in the world does that uh, connect to my life? I don't have what he had. I don't have or can't experience what he experienced. How does it relate to me? Well, it relates to us because he had everything that you and I have ever wanted. He experienced everything that you and I have ever craved, and yet at the end of the day said, meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. But you say, well, Solomon lived 3,000 years ago. I need somebody more relevant well, or, or, and current. Let me, let me bring up the very disrespectful question that was asked at the end of last week's sermon. That, I quote asked, if everything under the sun is vanity and striving after the wind, do the Patriots Super Bowl wins really matter? That was the question. I probably shouldn't divulge information, but I do know who the asker of the question was. And I would have kept it confidential, except that she went viral with this this past week. I will withhold a little bit of information. Her first name is Rachel. <laughs> and her, her last name is a very spiritual thing that you do <laughs> often while on your knees. That's all you're getting from me. But Rachel, she who 
petitions and intercedes and asks for things with her head bowed, Rachel has a point. In fact, not to be melodramatic, her point is spot on. It's seriously true. It brought to mind the fact that a number of years ago, Tom Brady did a 60 Minutes interview. And in this interview, this was earlier in his career when he only had three championship rings. He was, that was not meant to be snide. That, <laughs> just a statement of fact. I didn't mention that he now has four. So, but when he had three rings, he was very rich. He was at that time dating a supermodel, now is married to a supermodel. They say he's good-looking. I try not to measure those things for guys. Um, he had it all. And in this 60 Minutes uh, interview, as it is reported, it went like this. With all of Brady's fame and career accomplishments, the interviewer was surprised to hear this from Brady. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, th this is what is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, blank, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't it. This can't be what it's all cracked up to be. What's the answer, he was asked. I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I love playing football. I love being quarterback for this team. But at the same time, I think there are a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. Yes, there are, Tom. Yes, there are. You see, Mr. Brady, even if in the quest for significance, you could try everything under heaven that there is to try, you would never find your meaning here. Because your maker is your meaning. Your maker is your meaning. Remember the person I quoted last week who said that we human beings, in our quest for significance, in our search for meaning, we are like those who jump off a high cliff and then knit parachutes for ourselves on the way down. And so here we are in a free fall trying to knit parachutes that are going to catch us before we are dashed. The text in front of us reveals a parachute that Solomon tried. The second that we're looking at last week, we looked at the geek and guru approach to life. This week, the party, palate, and pleasure approach to life. I don't know about you, but I miss the old bumper sticker days, the days when old cars could be kept alive and on the road uh, for at least an extra year or two by just holding them together with bumper stickers. Remember those days, the hundreds of bumper stickers? I used to enjoy that because you could, just by driving behind someone for a few seconds, you could get a pretty good idea of their view of life, their philosophy of life, that one three-inch by 12-inch sticky piece of paper declared their worldview. So I remember more than once finding myself behind a car that, on which was pasted this sticker, in search of the eternal buzz. In search of the eternal buzz. I picture Solomon with that on the back of his chariot. Solomon riding off toward the horizon on the back of his chariot in search of the eternal buzz. 
We are, we're tempted, aren't we, to think that in a world of pain, the answer is pleasure. In a world of pain, the answer is in sensations that make us feel good. Let's look at the text. Let's look at Solomon's experiment, his experience, and his explanations. His experiment, verse 1 of chapter 2, Solomon said, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. Test is a word that speaks of experiment, trial and error language. He's he's saying, okay, I'm going to test this out, and here's what I'm going to test. I'm going to test you with pleasure, he says to himself. He says, self, enjoy yourself. Have fun. This wasn't necessarily a binge party. It wasn't necessarily an orgy-like indulgence, although it is very clear that there was radical indulgence on his part. But he is thinking his way through this process. In verse 3, he says, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, and my heart was still guiding me with wisdom. What he's saying here is that he was not just a what we might say in self-righteousness, a wasted misfit. Now, this was, this was a still-thinking man who was experimenting with every pleasure imaginable under the sun to see if any of it would give him meaning, if any of it would satisfy. So, he experimented with sight, Wondrous works in gardens and parks with hearing. There was laughter, thus comedy. And there were musicians and singers with touch. There were many women and much pleasure with smell. There was uh, gardens and fruit trees and wine with taste. There were vineyards. There were fruit trees. There was food in abundance. Music, singers, laughters, comedy, wine, women. Would they bring me joy, Solomon said. So what was his experience? Look at verse 9. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. All my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. In verse 11, behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Vanity meaningless, a striving after the wind, wind chasing, wind chasing. He never gained anything by it. Why not? Why not? Solomon, both by his life and by his words, gives us, I think, four or five reasons why pleasure doesn't satisfy Let me run through these for you this afternoon. Reason number one, because pleasure enslaves and destroys. Pleasure enslaves and destroys. This is is hinted at and, and borne testimony of through Solomon's life itself. These were life dominating pursuits for him. This controlled his life. Just, just when he says, you know, for example, I had many women, many concubines. You remember, 300 wives, 700 mistresses. That is a life-dominating obsession. This man was addicted. This man was bound. This man was enslaved. And it ruined him. 
He was a man who it looked like was starting off well in his life and in his spiritual journey. Then he started making the wrong choices, started following detours off the path, and it led him to a place where he abandoned God. Now, some have asked, well, did he lose his salvation? Well, we don't know if he ever was saved. But if he was, we can be sure that God in his mercy at some point worked repentance in his heart. But we're not told about it. The last chapter of his life, as far as we are told, is one in which his addictions and his pursuit of pleasure led him far away from God and the ruin of his life and the ruin, the ruin of his kingdom. Pleasure will do that to you. Pleasure enslaves and it destroys. You ever noticed how quickly a pleasure turns into a tyrant? You ever ever notice how addicting pleasure is, no matter what it is? I, I have a couple of friends here today. Pat and Tim Bowditch. Pat and Tim served alongside of Galen and me in ministry in Tom's River for decades. I'll tell you right now, I wouldn't be still in ministry if not for these two. Um, also here are Matt and Lee Dwinnells, who have been serving faithfully in the Philippines for years, recently persecuted and imprisoned for three weeks just for serving kids, being falsely accused. All of that accusation over, but the effect's still here. Dear friends right here. But Tim is weird. (laughs) He's weird because he has the gift of moderation. I'll never forget years ago when Tim told me that he has two cookies after dinner. How does somebody do that? (laughs) I'm with Brian Regan. I measure my cookies in sleeves. I have two sleeves after dinner. Moderation. (laughs) Pleasure has a way of grabbing us, of enslaving us. Many in this room know that right now, all of us to one degree. Some right now in the, in the deep, dark bondage to pleasure that's destroying your life. See, that's what pleasure does. It, it enslaves and it destroys. Secondly, pleasure promises more than it delivers. It promises more than it delivers. No, did you notice the question Solomon asked in verse 2? I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? What does it actually accomplish? Think about it. What does pleasure actually do? What is its usefulness? What is its benefit? This is a rhetorical question. It's meant to be a question that has an obvious answer. It doesn't have any use. Now, it doesn't come at you saying that. It comes at you making promises. It comes at you saying, drink this and you will be happy. Smoke this, and you will be happy. Look at this, and you will be happy. Hug this, touch this, and you will be happy. Listen to this, and you will be happy. But it never, ever, ever, ever delivers. 
Oh, for a second, yes, but it never delivers joy. Never does. Never does. It makes promises. It never fulfills. There was an um, entomologist. You know what an entomologist is? An insect scientist for the life of me. Cannot quite figure out why anyone would devote his life to studying insects. But this was apparently a very good entomologist. Nikolaus Tinbergen ended up being a Nobel Prize winning entomologist. Made it one of his life's work to study things like the mating habits and rituals of butterflies. And in, and in one particular study, he put male and female butterflies into the same space. And the Females began to flap their brightly colored ornate wings to attract the males. However, Tinbergen also put into that space some cardboard replicas of female butterflies that had unnaturally large wings and much brighter coloring than the real butterflies. And the males tried mating with the fake females. <laughs> this is science, folks. This is science. <laughs> a male butterfly will ignore a living female butterfly of his own species in favor of a painted cardboard butterfly if the cardboard one is bigger than he is, bigger than any female butterfly could ever be. The male butterfly will flutter by the female and go for the cardboard. A false promise of a bigger pleasure. I don't have to make a connection. You see the connection. Pleasure makes promises that it cannot keep came across a song this week written by a heartbroken songwriter who in her own words was vexed, perplexed, and oversexed. She sings, I'm wild again, beguiled again, a simpering, whimpering child again, bewitched, bothered, and bewildered. A woman who was in the constant pursuit, apparently, of pleasure and found herself beguiled again and again and again, bewitched and bewildered. Pleasure promises more than it can deliver. Third, pleasure is boring. Pleasure is boring. Notice verses 8 and 9 of chapter 1. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. It's all weariness, he says. It's exhausting. 
And this isn't just weariness and exhaustion. This is bored weariness. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Same old, same old. Pleasure is boring. There is boredom fatigue that sets in. When it comes to pleasure as a way of life, when it comes to pleasure as your primary pursuit, it won't be long before you said, I've been there, I've done that. There's got to be something more. There is the law of diminishing returns when it comes to pleasure. Video games need to be more realistic, more violent, more complicated. Movies in real life, the guns have to be bigger, the explosions more violent, the car chases more wild. Theme park roller coasters have to be faster and steeper. Thrill seekers have to take greater risks. Drugs have to be stronger and quicker in their, in their effect. Sex has to be kinkier and more edgy. Porn has to be more graphic. Even potato chips has to come out with an endless... An endless list of flavors. Because the last flavor is so boring. It's just the way it is. G.K. Chesterton writes, Meaningless does, Meaninglessness does not come from being weary of pain. Meaninglessness comes from being weary of pleasure. It occurs at that point when you have exhausted the last dream and you find it leaves you barren and empty. I wonder if there is one reason, this is one reason why we have so many teens and 20-somethings who so early in life are despairing, who so early in life are thinking suicide. I wonder if it is at least in part because so many have already tried so much, experienced so many pleasures, so many treasures, by the time they hit their teen years, they're already aware, if this is what life is about, I don't want to live. Pleasures are boring. They are exhausting. And fourthly, pleasure is vain in that it never lasts. This never lasts. We see this clearly put in chapter 12 and verse 1. Chapter 12 and verse 1, remember your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and your years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Pleasures don't last. Not the immediate right here and now pleasure, it doesn't last. And not a lifetime of pleasure. There will come a point when pleasure, physical pleasure will end. Then what do you do? If you don't have something deeper, if you don't have a joy that runs deeper down into your very bones, that's, that's about more than your nerve endings and your sensations, if you don't have meaning that runs into the marrow of your existence, then when the pleasure ends, you will despair of life. Back in the 20th century, one of the most famous people on the planet for the century was Ernest Hemingway. The ultimate man's man, a famous, wealthy, big game hunting, hard drinking, partying, womanizing, bullfight loving, 
intellectual who prided himself on his lack of faith in God and dove into every pleasure available in his day, arguing that he could do whatever he chose with no moral consequences to fear or God to face at the end of it. What many don't realize is that he battled depression and emptiness virtually his whole life. Pleasure proved to be a hard taskmaster, a cruel tyrant that beat him up, beat up his health violently. At a mere 61 years of age, overweight, tired of dieting, liver corroded from alcohol, unable to enjoy any of his previous manly pursuits, according to Time magazine, he told a friend, quote, what does a man care about? Staying healthy, working hard, eating and drinking with his friends, enjoying himself in bed. I haven't any of them. Do you understand? None of them. None of them. And less than a month later, on a quiet Sunday morning, Ernest Hemingway, 61 years old, picked up his favorite gun. The gun that he used in his big game hunting, with which he used to say that he gave those animals, quote, the gift of death. He took that gun and took his own life. In eulogy of Ernest Hemingway, it was said, for Ernest, life was a short day's journey from nothingness to nothingness. If there is no one above the sun, if pleasure is your God, your goal, your God, your everything, the pleasure will end. And what will you have then? Pleasure lies and deceives in all these ways and disappoints in all these ways. And might I add this, pleasure as a life pursuit distracts you from the real and the eternal. It's, it's like the cardboard butterfly. It looks good, it entices, it appeals, it draws. But in this case, we have to look above the cardboard, above the butterfly. We need to look above the sun. We need to see that there is one in whom we can delight, in whose presence is fullness of joy, at whose right hand there are pleasures forevermore. A God who is the pleasing one, whose face and whose beauty and whose glory and whose majesty and whose love and whose power and whose wisdom and whose justice is perfect and so beautiful. There is one made to satisfy. God is not a cosmic party pooper. God is not a cosmic killjoy. Don't get the wrong idea. We're going to learn from the book that God wants us to enjoy things here on earth. But if we enjoy the things more than the one who gave them, if we replace him with them, then our idolatry and our folly will lead to our ruin. God has made us, and I'm getting about six messages ahead of myself right now, but in the words of Augustine, God has made us for himself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. 
Our hearts are restless until they rest in him. Let's pray. Father, may it be that every restless heart here today will soon find rest in you. Ultimate pleasure in you. Lasting, eternal pleasure in you. Grant it, O Lord, please, in Jesus' name. Okay, Q&A. First question, try to have it up there. How did Solomon go from Proverbs, which keeps God in his worldview, to Ecclesiastes, that keeps God out of the worldview? I'm not sure. I do know... I do know this, that it wasn't in a leap. It was a gradual departure. Um, we are warned uh, in Hebrews to beware lest we drift away from our faith. Um, Solomon began to indulge things, pursue things. Specifically, the scriptures teach us that it was, it was the many women that drew his heart away from the Lord began to pursue things as the primary goal more than God. And, and that moved him away from wisdom and discernment and the fear of God that he says in the Proverbs is the beginning of wisdom. So it's a warning to us all. Um, uh, be, be careful of the drift. Be careful of the little choices that take you a little bit off path. Guard your heart. Another warning is it is possible, and we can see this in Scripture, we can see this throughout church history, it's possible to say all the right things and not have the right heart. It's possible to spew proverbs without actually submitting to them. May a, an appropriate caution come to each one of us. Our words are not the measure of the reality. The measure of a man, as one, said, one person said, is that he is what he seems to be. And the measure of a believer, of a man, of a woman, is not just what he says he is, but what he is, how he lives. And Solomon shows you can say one thing and do another. Before we go to the next question, a quick follow-up. Je uh, Jesus said, what is it? profit a man if he gains the entire world and forfeits his soul in Mark 8. Would you say that this is a fitting one-sentence commentary of the book of Ecclesiastes from Jesus Christ? Yeah. For, gain the whole world, lose your soul. Um, what is a profit a man, Jesus said. Yes, that is a, that is a tremendous one-verse summary of the book of Ecclesiastes. Folks, we're going to see uh, next time uh, that you can pursue all the treasures in the world. It's not going to satisfy. You can gain everything. You can have it all and end up with nothing. End up with nothing. 
be willing to lose it all, you end up with everything. This is, this is the mystery of Christ's call to faith. He says, come and deny yourself. Come and, and renounce the world as your treasure and as your pleasure and find in me your treasure and your pleasure and you will be full of treasure and pleasure. This is, this is the call to genuine faith. Is it uh, Jim Elliott? Um, the martyr down in South America back, what, 50 years ago? Just recently was the anniversary of his martyrdom. He is no fool, Elliot said, who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's the call to faith right there. Are you willing to give, give up the reign and rule and idols of your heart? Are you willing to give what you cannot keep you're going to lose it anyways. To gain what you cannot lose, eternal joys in the presence of him with whom there is pleasure forever, forevermore. Uh, next question. If it is all meaningless or vanity, why bother getting up in the morning at all? Well, what would you say to someone who says, okay, so why should I get up in the morning? What gets us going? Remember, I said in the first message that Solomon actually says that essentially in Ecclesiastes. He says, why was I born? And I wish I were dead. If you are stuck under the sun, um, at one level there is no point in getting up in the morning. You know, there, there is no ultimate meaning. You can get up and fake it. You can get up and go through the motions, you can get up and find momentary pleasure and joy, but if you're looking for ultimate meaning and you're stuck below, beneath the sun, you're not going to find it, so sleep in. But if you're aware that there is something beyond, if you're aware that there is a God who made the sun and all that's below the sun, if you're a God who is aware that God, that he has, if you are one who has is aware that God has infused this cosmos with his glory. It's ignited with his majesty. If you're one who is aware that God dwells here and God lives among us and God lives beside us and that the world is charged, as the poet said, charged with the grandeur of God, well, there's a reason to get up in the morning. You see, it's, it's when you're stuck beneath the sun that Meaning vaporizes. But look above the sun and you have every reason to live. So look above the sun. Look above the sun. Um, what are some practical ways that we can engage the world and beauty and yet not be enslaved by pleasure? Because, you know, as we think about creation. We think marriage is a good thing. We think sex is a good thing. Food is a good thing. You know, these are all, I mean, God created us as material human beings with senses, with pleasures. So in what way can we engage and even enjoy these things and yet not be enslaved by the pleasure? Patriots winning the Super Bowl is a good thing. <laughs> this is going to be a running thread throughout this whole series. Um, 
Yeah, it might not be after tonight. I heard that. I heard that. Um, yeah, if they lose tonight, you won't hear me talk about it again. So, um, the um, I forgot the question. <laughs> it's just like, I what mean, are some practical, practical ways that we can actually that. enjoy the world, okay. creation, pleasure, without being enslaved by it? Good. We're getting to the, I think it's the last message in this series is, is called uh, something like Echoes of Eden. Uh, we're going we're gonna to find throughout the book of Ecclesiastes that there are moments when the author pauses and says something really good. And one of the things that he says repeatedly that's really good is enjoy yourself. Enjoy your wife, your kids, your food your job. And what he's saying there is, if you have God in the picture, then you are, as, as the ultimate giver and pleasure giver, if, if you're looking to him for your ultimate pleasure and for your ultimate joy, then you can receive his gifts as expressions of his love and his kindness and his goodness. So it turns eating food from just a mere physical exercise that you do to survive to an act of worship and joy. My father, I, I have a lemon meringue pie waiting for me on the kitchen counter when I get home. So if I slide out quickly, you know where I'm going. It's waiting for me. And I'm going to worship my God as I eat it. <laughs> I am. I am. Because my God made lemons. And every other thing that goes into that pie and my amazing, gorgeous wife who put it all together in one place. And so as I'm eating it, I'm saying, thank you, God. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm saying, thank you, God giver of every good and perfect gift. But you see, it starts with God and works to the gift. If you reverse that, it's meaningless. If you keep that order, everything becomes meaningful. Everything becomes meaningful. And that's the glory of it. And that's why we're doing this series, because we want to make sure every single person in this room and beyond taste the glory and find out that there is something not just worth living for, there is something glorious and wonderful to live for in knowing God and His Son who is the face of God. As we gaze into His face, we see the love and goodness and grace and power and majesty and beauty of God. All right. All right. I think we'll stop there with, with questions. Uh, as Tim mentioned, uh, we had a ton of questions last week, questions we can't get to. We're going to try to share them on Facebook, so you can just go to our Facebook page, Risen Hope uh, Church. Um, and uh, in closing, uh, let me just take a moment to pray for us um, uh, as, we, as we go to the Lord, as we consider these things. Heavenly Father, we're humbled by the fact that Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, drifted from you. Lord, he, the author of 
Proverbs, the man who was David's own son, the king of Israel, could turn away from the living God. And that humbles us. I pray that you would keep us faithful, Lord, that you would continue to use all the means of grace, your word, your spirit, your people, fellowship, to keep us faithful because we are reminded that pleasure could easily drag us away as it did Solomon. Help us to stay close to you. And as we consider these things, God, help us to recognize that you are the creator, that you've made all things for your glory. Lord, you've created us as human beings uh, with five senses. So help us to enjoy your creation in a way that honors you as our creator. Help us to love you, the giver of all good gifts, in a way that recognizes you as God and not these other things as God. Help us, God. We can't do this on our own. Lord, you know that our hearts are so easily drawn away. So help us to be faithful to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.